Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your skeleton covered in flesh host, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode, we have meta stalkers, selfish werewolves, and haunted houses. Stay close as we traverse through this hopefully killer-free haunted house maze together. Number one, Director's Cut 2016, directed by Adam Rifkin. A man named Herbert Blount, who's a stalker of character actor Missy Pyle, makes his own Director's Cut of a film he helped crowdfund that stars Missy Pyle. His Director's Cut eventually includes scenes of himself and a kidnapped Missy Pyle edited into the film. Missy ends up escaping, and Herbert is arrested. No one is the killer. The movie within the movie follows two police officers and an FBI agent as they track down a serial killer that recreates famous crime scenes of past killers. One of the police officers, Reed, is the killer. I'm a big fan of Penn and Teller, so of course I had to check out Director's Cut as soon as I found out Penn wrote it and both the magicians act in it. Teller is only in it for a quick interrogation scene. He talks, which is super weird since I mostly know him as the silent partner. Penn plays Herbert Blount and is perfect as the obsessed eccentric. When you watch this, you're basically watching a movie that Penn's character has made his own director's cut of that also has his own commentary track over it. It's absolutely nuts. Herbert decides to put in behind-the-scenes content in his director's cut, which would make this terrible if it was a real movie, but is super fun to see since it shows how crazy Herbert is. This film is obviously portrayed in a very novel way. I really enjoyed it. Herbert is crazy, and it's fun to see everything from his oddball point of view. Whenever his character is on screen, he's wearing the loudest suits I've ever seen. He's not even trying to be inconspicuous. I love how all the actors are playing themselves as they are acting in a fake movie. I've seen Missy Pyle in a ton of stuff, and because of this movie, I will never forget her name again. Herbert even has a tattoo of her in the movie. There is a lot of fun gore in this, well, in the fake movie I mean. We get a bunch of reenactments of the killer's crimes. The killer does his crimes as homages to Albert Fish, Charles Whitman, Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, and James Huberty. In all the reenactments, a different actor plays the killer for no reason, until Reed is revealed to be the true killer. Once we know it's Reed, we see the reenactments again a second time with Reed dressed as all the characters. It's ridiculous, stupid, and great. The fake movie is supposed to be pretty terrible, so all of this works. Since you see two reenactments of each crime, you see a fake head get a bite taken out of the face twice during the Dahmer segment. It's a lot of fun. Gilbert Godfrey and Ron Jeremy make appearances, which are hilarious. Director's Cut was crowdfunded, and the whole movie makes fun of crowdfunders. 
The parts where Herbert and Missy are green screened in after he kidnaps her are hysterical. Missy's makeup looks especially terrible during these scenes since Herbert applied it. There's a sex scene in the beginning of the movie that is shown a second time with a terribly green screened in Herbert imposed over the original male lead. The movie's a trip. It doesn't technically come off as much of a horror film. Sure, Herbert is kind of a scary character due to his obsession with Missy Pyle, but he doesn't torture or kill anyone. I mean, he kidnaps her, but he's just doing what he needs to in order to make the perfect movie. This includes trying to make Missy the star. I do feel that the ending of the movie is kind of weak. Missy escapes and Herbert goes to jail. I feel like a darker ending where Missy dies before Herbert finishes filming could have led to some insane weekend at Bernie green screen shenanigans. I wanted things to go just a little farther into the realm of absurdity. Director's Cut is a fun, unique time that should definitely be checked out, especially for fans of Pendulette. If you hate the guy for some reason, probably avoid this. Number 2, An American Werewolf in London, 1981, directed by John Landis. Two friends, David and Jack, go backpacking in England. They go to a pub and are asked to leave after inquiring about a star on the wall. After leaving, they are attacked by a werewolf. Jack is killed, David is bitten, and the pub goers, feeling guilty, show up and kill the werewolf. David wakes up in a hospital where he has nightmares, falls in love with the nurse, and is told by Ghost Jack that everyone killed by all the werewolves in the same bloodline will have to walk the earth until David, the last werewolf in that bloodline, is killed. David doesn't really care and ends up staying with the nurse. Instead of trying to restrain himself for the upcoming full moon, David mooches off the nurse until he turns into a werewolf and kills a bunch of people. He turns back into a human and feels bad, but not bad enough to kill or try to restrain himself. So he turns into a werewolf again, kills more people, and is then shot dead by the police. The old man werewolf that turns David and David are the killers. I saw this movie popping up in horror comedy discussion threads, which led me to finally dive in and watch it. David is an insufferable git. He makes Jack go on a terrible backpacking trip. When they encounter the werewolf, Jack tries to save David, thus aggroing the werewolf to attack him instead. David then just runs off and lets Jack die. His antics make me hate him even more. Homie knows that he's going to turn into a werewolf. If any of us had a good inkling that we'd transform into a murderous monster, I think I speak for all of us when I say any normal person would try to restrain themselves during a full moon. Chains, ropes, duct tape, literally anything. David doesn't even try. He sucks. He's a selfish jerk that doesn't care about his friends or even the nurse he's using. After his first rampage, he tries to get arrested and stay away from the nurse, but he doesn't try all that hard. I didn't really find an American Werewolf in London to be all that funny. That's probably due to my seething hatred towards David. I think John Landis has made some humorous movies like The Blues Brothers, Three Amigos, and Animal House. Those movies star actual comedic actors though. David Naughton, who plays David, doesn't appear to have any real comedic credits, which isn't surprising. He's not funny and his acting in this isn't good. No one's acting is especially good in An American Werewolf in London, so why do people like this movie? The special makeup effects are incredible. Rick Baker brings the werewolves and their victims to life. Well, the victims are ghosts, but you get what I mean. He's one of the greatest effects crafters of all time, and his work in An American Werewolf in London does not disappoint. David's werewolf transformation is one of the best I've ever seen. 
I also love the different stages of Jack's walking corpse. Jack steals all the scenes he's in due to the amazing makeup effects. The scenes with werewolves and their rampaging are really fun and well done. I like the werewolf designs in this movie. The four legs on the ground like an actual wolf approach is used here, and I think this might be my preferred werewolf style. During David's second wolf night on the town, he causes a huge pileup after running around in the streets. A ton of people die because of this. The chaos is crazy and shot incredibly well. There's also a part in the movie where David has a dream that werewolf Nazis are attacking his family, which is absurd and a delight to watch. I feel like this movie would have been right up my alley if David was made into a more sympathetic, likable character, or if the comedy aspects or horror aspects were focused on. I feel the split attention hurt this film since at times it feels like it's trying to be a goofy comedy and at other moments a straight up horror film. Even though I hate David, I still think An American Werewolf in London is worth checking out for the special effects work alone. The movie won the first ever official Academy Award for Best Makeup and Hairstyling for a reason. Quick pet warning, Naked David kills a deer in a dream. It's more odd than disturbing. Number 3, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, 1992, directed by Fran Rubel Kazooie. A popular high school girl named Buffy meets a guy named Merrick who tells her she's the Slayer. She then fights vampires and beats the big bad vampire Lothos. She also falls in love with a guy named Pike. Lothos and the other vampires are the killers. This original Buffy movie was written by Joss Whedon. He disliked it so much that he left production and went on to make the series. Whedon's jokes were removed, the character Merrick was supposed to commit suicide but is instead killed by Lothos, and the original ending had Buffy burn down her high school to kill all the vampires. That's canon in the show, but this movie ends with an incredibly lame fight, followed by Buffy jumping onto Pike's hog. They then ride off. Yeah, it's incredibly lame. Buffy is played by Christy Swanson. She could be worse, but after watching the show, all I can say is, Not my Buffy. Pike is played by Luke Perry. He has zero charisma. He also has a tiny soul patch for most of the film. The movie was rushed because of his Beverly Hills 90210 filming schedule. They should have just let David Arquette be the love interest. David Arquette is probably the best part of the entire movie. He turns into a vampire early on and is fantastic whenever he's on screen. He's not the only celebrity vampire in this movie. Paul Rubens is also a vampire. For me, it's really hard to take Paul Rubens seriously since it's impossible for me to separate him from Pee Wee Herman. I do love Pee Wee Herman though. He brings a little bit of over-the-top comedy to his death scene that goes on forever and is probably the funniest bit in the entire movie. Buffy stabs him, he dies, he comes back for a bit, dies, comes back for a bit, dies, and then comes back for one more time during the credits before ultimately dying. The gag feels out of place, but I loved it. Paul Rubens improvised the death. The whole last third of the movie has a strange feel to it. There's a scene where Buffy creates a flamethrower with hairspray and shoots it at Lothos. His head catches on fire and then there are a bunch of strange cuts with barely any sound. It's like an awkward re-edit someone would post online for laughs. Before I forget, Lothos has a flesh-colored mustache. It's really off-putting. He's also the lamest villain I've ever seen. I thought the master was bad in season 1 of Buffy, but hot damn is Lothos not intimidating in the least. It looks like he raided Liberace's closet. Lothos, you look too fabulous to be scary. 
The dialogue in this movie and its delivery are terrible. The word sitch is used three times. One time is pushing it, in my opinion. Ben Affleck is on the opposing high school basketball team. I was like, look, it's Ben Affleck. Hilary Swank is in this, which made me think about that part in the office where they are debating whether she's hot or not. I want to say I'm team hot, but some fashion choices in this movie make me see the other side's argument. The fashion is probably the costume department's fault, though. The vampire look in the Buffy movie is much more simplistic compared to the show. I think I actually prefer the movie look because the show makes vampires look like lions. I like the simple sharp teeth and pointy ears approach the movie has. Well, the lion look with the animal sounds in the show are kind of funny though. Allegedly, Donald Sutherland, who plays Merrick, was a jerk to work with, according to Whedon. I mean, he was technically the biggest star in the movie at the time, but has anyone ever gone to see a movie solely because Donald Sutherland is in it? I don't like the guy. Eh, I'm more indifferent. He's a really boring old guy. He's no Anthony Stewart head, that's for sure. I know they don't play the same character per se, but they both basically play a watcher making the comparison valid. The sound design in this movie and the soundtrack are completely off. Vampires make random sounds that don't match the way their mouths move at all, and song choices don't partner well with what's happening on screen. You should skip Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the original movie, and start watching the show instead. If you're really curious, I'd recommend looking up highlights on YouTube instead of watching the entire runtime. Number 4, Satanic, 2016, directed by Jeffrey Hunt. A group of kind of friends, consisting of a goth couple, Elise and Seth, and some normies, Chelsea and David, visit some satanic locations in Los Angeles on their way to Coachella. The group follows a Satanist to a secret gathering and see what they think is a sacrifice of a girl. They're noticed after Chelsea screams no and are chased away from the gathering. The next day, the potential sacrifice, Alice, calls the group using Seth's phone that he dropped during the escape, and they all meet up. They invite Alice back to their hotel room, which is a mistake. She does a crazy ritual with their help before killing herself. The group then begins to die, or disappear, one by one. It's revealed that some sort of loop is happening before Chelsea is shown stuck in a room with some weird figure. Alice is the killer. I mean, I guess. She does the ritual, which I think leads to the group dying. They might just be in a state of torture forever, but for this podcast purposes, they dead. It's funny that a movie called Satanic tries to bring up Anton LaVey and whatnot, yet has no idea about what Satanism is. You think they would have done a tiny bit of research? What unfortunate events led to the demise of these idiots? Well, they brought it all on themselves. They tailed the creepy Satanic shop guy for way too long. When they get to the house where the Satanist crew is having a gathering, the group of friends doesn't try to be stealthy at all. They end up yelling at the people they aren't supposed to be alerting after witnessing a girl not get sacrificed? I mean, if she actually started getting sacrificed, I could see someone shouting no out of panic, but Chelsea only yells after seeing that the sacrifice isn't happening. Come on, little dum-dum. I guess she technically has to do this since we learn the group is stuck in a loop. In the beginning of the movie, they come across a girl screaming for help on a balcony, that girl was Chelsea all along. Does that make any sense or impact the plot at all? Nope. It is a crappy attempt at explaining the group's stupidity. 
They have to be stupid because their fate has already been decided. This kind of random loop made more sense in Baskin. My favorite characters in Satanic are Elise and Seth. I wish they were the main characters since David and Chelsea kinda suck. Well, David totally sucks. He has zero charisma and continuously spouts out terrible comebacks. After Elise basically says no balls to David, and he retorts with, I have a pair Morticia, a big pair. Sure you do, buddy. Everyone's acting is pretty terrible. Elise and Stan's chemistry and mannerisms work, but I don't think anyone could have delivered the dialogue in this in a convincing way. You can't have a character threaten to leave a bad Yelp review in 2016 and make me believe it's something someone would actually say. When Seth realizes he lost his phone, which he recorded part of the Satanist gathering on, he says, There's some real viral on that. Hello fellow kids, wanna record some viral to drop down the internet tubes? The soundtrack in this movie is puzzling. It's bad, obviously. I think the worst offender is a song that plays over an LA tourism montage that has the lyrics, wrap your legs around my religion. David continuously brings up Two and a Half Men, which would be a dated reference even in 2016. You'd think he's joking, but his character is sincere in his pursuit to get closer to Two and a Half Men. I think that's the best way to give a full understanding of just how lame his character is. Once we get to the gore in this, it's actually pretty well done. Alice slits her own throat, which looks 10 times better than the throat slices in Slice. If you haven't heard me complain about Slice, PSA, don't watch it. It's terrible. I'm probably going to keep saying that to make sure no one else wastes their time and or money on it. Satanic's throat slash is practical and has a bunch of gushing blood. It's great. That's really the only instance of see it happen gore. The other gore comes more from seeing bodies after things have happened to them. We see Elise's body melted to a ceiling, which is pretty awesome and original. I didn't expect to see something so strange and unique. Seth's body is a little chomped up, and one of his arms looks kind of melty and stretched out, which looks good. Chelsea has a dream sequence where her guts are hanging out, which is well done. The movie ends right after showing Chelsea with her mouth sewn shut and her arms ripped off, which is a disturbing standalone predicament. If that was incorporated into a better movie, it would be incredibly unsettling. Even though I like these dead, well, probably still alive being tortured for all eternity body reveals, all this happens in the last 20 minutes, and we don't get to see what happens to make these bodies end up like this. I'd probably recommend this movie if more time was spent on the group's demise. They could have cut out a ton of pointless scenes, like the time-filling aerial shots of the city that don't really make any sense in this horror movie, and replaced all that wasted time by showing what happened to everyone on screen. Let me see Elise melt, Seth get butchered, and Chelsea get her arms ripped off. I didn't mention David because he just kinda... disappears. Comes back for a second, then disappears again. All we really see happen to David is the Roman numeral for four gets scratched onto his cheek. By scratched, I mean crappily painted on with fake blood. I'm not sure why those scratches were done so poorly. Maybe it's symbolic. Even David's gore is lame. Pet warning, you see a bunch of dead birds. It's not really disturbing, though. The first one is shown during a supernatural trashing of a house the group stays at. There are a bunch of loud crashing noises and inexplicable damage to the house, but we only get a reaction out of someone after they see a dying bird on the floor. 
No reaction at all to the loud crashing sounds for some reason. Satanic is almost a so bad it's good with a touch of decent gore movie, but ultimately misses the mark. Skip this and watch Modern Family if you really want to see Sarah Hyland in something. She was Chelsea all along. Number 5, Hellfest, 2018, directed by Gregory Plotkin. A man kills a girl in a haunted house. Years later, two girls, Natalie and Brooke, attend a big haunted house festival with guys they are interested in and another couple. In one of the houses, Natalie sees a masked man kill a girl which she assumes is fake. The masked man then stalks her and starts picking off her friends one by one. Eventually, the masked man kills people in a crowded area, which leads to panic. Natalie and Brooke end up in the last section of the haunted house and survive the night. The masked man disappears, ends up at home, and is greeted by his young daughter. The masked man is the killer. Hellfest looked really promising from the trailer I saw. A film where people are haunted by an actual killer through a bunch of haunted house mazes? Sounds awesome. Unfortunately, the premise isn't capitalized on. The setting of Hellfest is really cool. I love the Hellfest location. It's this huge party with a bunch of spooky maze sections where you can keep going deeper and deeper. This is basically a movie where you watch a bunch of friends have fun. Sure, some of them end up dying, but there aren't that many kills. The few kills in the movie are mostly boring. Four out of six of the kills are forgettable stomach stabs. The other kills are nowhere near awesome enough to make this okay. Sure, we get one decent kill where the masked man gets a boy Natalie is into to put his head on the target for one of those carnival mallet bell games before using a mallet to remove the boy's head, but other than that and one other, the kills suck. The other kill you might be asking, another boy gets a syringe planted in his brain, through his eye. The kills are practical and well done, but barring those two described, they're boring. If we had more creative carnival deaths like the mallet smash, this movie would probably have been better received. I saw a bunch of headlines before watching it myself that were all negative. Hellfest, you're a slasher in 2018. You gotta have some over-the-top zany kills. Replace the masked man with Art the Clown from Terrifier and you probably would have had a huge hit. I don't hate the masked man in Hellfest, he's just kinda lame. I get that him being a regular Joe that goes a-killin' every year is pretty creepy and grounded, but he didn't do much for me. The song the masked man hums is especially lame. If you're going to have a character hum a song, either go full creepy or full random. Pop Goes the Weasel is a crappy middle ground. At first I thought he was going to kill whenever he got to the Pop Goes the Weasel part, which would have been cool, but I only remember him doing that for the first kill. I saw this with Kat. She said her song would be Boy Problems by Carly Rae Jepsen. I think I'd do Hanson's Mbop for ultimate randomness. Think about it. You're being stalked by some spooky masked character. You're hiding in a closet when you hear that killer start singing the chorus to Mbop. You'll either laugh and be instantly found, or pee your pants out of fear because only a real psycho SOB is going to be singing Mbop while hunting people. The one character that deserves to die in this movie survives. That character is Natalie. Natalie is the main girl the masked man hunts throughout the movie. She does something heinous in this film that I can't look past. The dude who she's into buys her a pretzel. She eats a tiny bit, then just throws it in the trash. She didn't even eat half of it. In my book, she's more of a monster than the masked man. 
how can this pretzel desecrator or pretzelcator get off scot-free? She doesn't even get a light slash or stab for the travesty she commits. Maybe the killer let her live after seeing what she did. Only a true psychopath would toss a perfectly good pretzel in the trash when someone next to them would have been willing to eat it. Natalie is played by Amy Forsyth. She played the lead character in Season 2 of Channel Zero. Natalie and that character are the exact same person. They both come back to their hometown from college and have an African-American best friend who they haven't been keeping in touch with. The characters line up perfectly. Bex Taylor-Claus is one of the random friends in the group who dies. She's in Scream the TV show. She's one of season one's killers. Sorry to spoil that if any of you weren't able to watch that garbage show yet. I actually do recommend the first season of Scream the TV show. It's not good, but has some really fun and entertaining stuff. There's a douchey character named Jake that makes it all worth it. There are also a few interesting kills. Tony Todd makes a cameo in Hellfest, which did nothing for me. The masked man gets his first weapon by stealing an ice pick knife thing from a shaved ice vendor. Why doesn't the vendor make a scene about this potential murder weapon disappearing after he looks away for two seconds? Shouldn't he alert someone? The masked man gets a second weapon after he finds an actual axe being used as a prop. Huh, everything is a prop but this one axe. That's not stupid at all. Natalie gets the upper hand on the masked man twice, but doesn't kill him, which is infuriating. I'm really sick of the killer being taken down by a victim, only for the victim to then leave before either incapacitating or mortally wounding the killer. I think it's the cliche that bothers me the most in slashers. Even though I have a lot of complaints, Hellfest is an enjoyable time. If you want to go see a dumb movie that'll entertain you to a certain degree, check it out. It's not great, it's not terrible, it's entertainingly mediocre. Number 6, Hell House, LLC, 2015, directed by Stephen Cognetti. 15 people died in a haunted house attraction that was created at the Abaddon Hotel. Behind the scenes footage filmed by the creators of the haunted house reveals that supernatural occurrences were happening before the opening. One of the creators, Paul, gets possessed. Rogue figures show up on opening night and start killing people. Possessed Paul kills one of the other creators, Sarah. A documentary crew is looking through this footage. They think Sarah is alive since they are interviewing her. Sarah tells them to go to the hotel. Two go there while another documentarian stays back and sees the footage of Sarah dying. The two who make it to the hotel don't find out this information in time and end up dead. Possessed Paul and rogue figures are the killers. I know that summary is confusing. The structure of the film is bad. The Blair Witch Project is one of my favorite horror films, and Hell House LLC has been popping up as a recommendation for fans of the OG Blair Witch. I had been avoiding the movie due to its name alone, so I thought, why not give it a chance? Hell House LLC's premise is very similar to Hellfest's, the deadly haunted house attraction premise is great. Hellfest didn't really take advantage of the premise, so what about Hell House LLC? Well, it doesn't either. It tries, which I appreciate. It's not a good movie though. Why? Any of the characters deciding to stay in that hotel after what they witness on film makes zero sense. Multiple 
unexplainable terrifying occurrences are caught on film. There is definitive proof that something spooky is happening, but all but two of the characters are like, eh, whatevs. Who cares if this place is literally haunted? One of the characters that gets extra spooked, Paul, doesn't take off after multiple things happen to him, so he ends up getting possessed. Another character named Tony says he's going to bail, but stays after he's allegedly told the leader of the group, Alex, put all the money the group had into the Hell House attraction. This is confirmed in the trailer for the sequel. I don't know why they don't fully explain why Tony stays in the first movie. Tony, who cares about the money at this point? You gotta have some other friends or family that can help you out. It's crazy that he decides to stay just because of these money issues. Besides Paul and Tony, there's Sarah. I believe she stays due to being partially possessed throughout the whole ordeal. This isn't confirmed, but I'd say it's implied by two scenes where Sarah acts like a weirdo. There's a clown mannequin that keeps moving around that is not something I'd want to sit in a room with. I'd say the moment the movie flips from being something promising to a mediocre found footage film is when Paul sees a creepy girl in his room and hides under the covers until she possesses him. The turning point might even be before this, since Paul should have already bailed, but this scene is where the movie changes from creepy, what the hell is going on, to look, a lame spooky ghost girl. You can't recover from lame spooky ghost girl. Her design is terrible and comes off as way too cheesy. The robe figures aren't great either, but since we never get a great look at them, they kinda work. We get to see the girl front and center. Maybe if the room was dark when Paul is attacked by her, it would have worked better. I think a creepier design for the girl and robed entities would have greatly increased my enjoyment of this movie. I'd probably even recommend it if the other spooky character designs were as good as the creepy clown. The acting in this is fine when it comes to the creators of The Haunted House. The creators' acting is believable enough, even though their actions aren't. Everyone else, like the random interviewees that aren't necessary and the documentary crew, are pretty terrible. The scenes where they interview the random photographer and other guy should have been left on the cutting room floor. There isn't a lot of gore in this. You do see Sarah's face after Paul hits her a few times with the camera. It's not impressive. You see Paul slide down a wall after slitting his own throat, also May. When the two documentary peeps find dead Sarah in the hotel, her face is all cut up and gory. That makeup was done well. Overall, I don't think Hell House LLC is worth your time. The payoff just didn't do anything for me. Maybe check this out if you're some kind of found footage super fan. Number 7. Castle Rock Talk I'm having some withdrawals from ending Buffy. I no longer have my lighthearted, goofy Monster of the Week show. So this episode, I'll give you my thoughts on Hulu's Stephen King Universe show, Castle Rock. I'm going to mostly give some overall impressions and avoid any real spoilers. This is Section 7, which is turning into more of a chill chit-chat zone. The premise of the show is basically this. A strange kid is found locked up. Weird things are happening in the town of Castle Rock. A guy named Henry Deaver who went missing for some time there as a kid comes back to help the random kid that was found locked up. 
I mean, I wouldn't really call Bill Skarsgård a kid per se, but he's credited as the kid. Funny how they decided to cast the actor who plays It to also play a character in Castle Rock. There are theories that this character is actually It, but I don't see it. I'm not a Stephen King super fan, so I missed a bunch of references. A lot of the season revolves around the Shawshank prison, which I know. There are some other references that even non-super fans can pick up on. Sissy Spacek, aka Carrie, plays Henry Deaver's mom. She's really hard to understand in multiple scenes. I probably should have put on subtitles. Some cool stuff happens with her character. There's a whole episode about her, which I really enjoyed. Up until the finale, I had a fun time trying to figure everything out. There are some concepts I didn't personally love, such as something that relates to a sound. I found the ending to be very disappointing. Basically, you're trying to figure out if something that was done was the right thing to do. The problem is there is a certain episode that is either all lies or just completely pointless information. This certain episode really makes the ending fall flat for me. Even though I am not a fan of the ending, I still do recommend checking out this show. It does feel a bit all over the place at times and isn't completely cohesive, but there is a lot to be entertained by throughout the season. Pet warning, a deceased family dog is shown. Birds also die. Moving forward, I'm only going to provide pet warnings when there's a live animal that is a person's pet that dies. I mean... There might be some exceptions, but I think my pet warnings have gotten a little out of hand. Without spoiling specifics, there are a lot of deaths in Castle Rock. The gore that's shown is incredibly well done. The entire season is beautifully crafted. I really enjoyed the sound design, besides some hard-to-hear dialogue. The original soundtrack is great and haunting. The music might be a little overbearing for some, but I think it worked well for Castle Rock. The acting is great across the board, barring one character who doesn't make a lot of sense and is very annoying. That character's name is Jackie if you want to look out for her. If you watch Castle Rock and think her character is important to the first season explicitly, let me know. Check out Castle Rock! Even though the ending will probably not sit well with you, the recommendation comes from the fun you'll have along the way. Episode 29 is now coming to a close. Blank is the Killer is now one year old. If you missed it, I released a special bonus episode called Pumpkin Harvest on October 1st. It's a quick episode where I list my favorite and least favorite movies that have been covered on the show up to this date. If you like this or any episode of Blank is the Killer, let the world know on iTunes, or tell your friends about the show. Big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the show as always. Episode 30 will be out on October 21st. I hope y'all all are enjoying Spooktober. Let me know what horror movies you're watching for the month on Instagram using the hashtag BlankIsTheKiller. Till next time, I'm going to figure out what this sound I keep hearing in the forest is.